Uh, if you're just joining us, just as a, in a way, as by way of recap, for everyone else as well, in biblical theology, we take a topic or a theme and we trace it through the scriptures, starting at Genesis, the first time we encounter whatever the topic is, and we see how it unfolds as we move through to the book of Revelation. So far, we've examined the concepts of temple and sonship, and then last time we looked at the interplay between the image of God and the incarnation. Tonight's topic is going to be different, and rather than just telling you what it is outright, I, I will tell you in just a moment, I want to read to you a series of New Testament, mostly New Testament passages that encapsulate this topic, and I, I want you to see if you can discern what it is. I think the main topic will be obvious by the time we're finished with these. But see if you can't detect some of these sub-themes that are going through these texts as well. There's eight of them. First one from John 16. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Matthew chapter 28, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Acts chapter 1, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of all the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on in Acts chapter 2, Peter speaking, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Two more. 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, The first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became life-giving spirit. And finally, from the Psalms, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. So you may have gathered that tonight we're going to be looking at the topic of the ascension from those verses. 
But we're going to be looking at the ascension through the, the lens of two sub-themes that also run parallel throughout Scripture. And those two sub-themes are mountains and gates. Mountains and gates in relationship to the ascension. That's what we're going to look at tonight. You may recall last time when we did a biblical theology of the incarnation, I started by saying we're doing a biblical theology where we trace a topic all the way through, and yet the incarnation happened at a single point in time. So how can we have a, an entire theology of one single event? Well, it was because... The foundations, the theological framework of that event was laid long before the event took place, all the way back in Genesis. And we're going to encounter something very similar here. Though the ascension does not take place until right after the time period of the Gospels, the, all of the pictures and the types and everything we need to understand the significance of the ascension is laid long before that. And so that's what we're going to do. So come along with me and, and let's jump back, as we almost always do, to the beginning of Genesis... And let's look at how God begins to set up the picture for us that will then inform our understanding of what Christ does. Back in Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and then we have the six days of creation. And one of the things that He creates during the six days of creation is, of course, the garden, the Garden of Eden. Now, when I say to you, picture the Garden of Eden... Everybody has some kind of conception in their mind of what that might have looked like. You may form your conception from some rendition of it you saw in a child's book somewhere when you were young or at Sunday school, perhaps in a film. I don't know if a film has been made about that, but you have your image that you picture whenever someone says Eden and you got it from somewhere. Maybe you made it up in your mind and chances are you're picturing flowers and trees and, and fruit and animals and those are all true things. But there's also a good chance that your image does not correspond to the way that the Bible presents the Garden of Eden. There's a good chance. And the reason for that is because when most people picture the Garden of Eden, they picture a relatively flat, extended surface where there's a special area inscribed where the garden lies. And then if you were to walk out of the garden, you would just continue straight on your path. You wouldn't be in it anymore, but you would just keep going straight, kind of along a plane, so to speak. But that's not the way that the scriptures actually present the layout of Eden. If we jump to Ezekiel chapter 28, and I read from this text when we talked about the, the temple of the Lord. This is a fascinating text. I'll just read a little bit from it. In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel is prophesying, but he's reflecting back upon what happened with Adam in the garden. And he starts by saying this, You, Adam, were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Then he goes on to list the stones that were his figurative covering, same stones that the priests would later wear. On the day you were created, those stones were prepared. And then we read this. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. Now remember what Genesis says? He took the man and he placed him. He placed him where? In the garden of Eden. But it says he placed him on the holy mountain mountain of God, which means what? That the garden was on top of a mountain. If you, take, if you take the words for what they say, the garden was on top of a mountain. Now, it's obviously not a cone-shaped mountain with a perfect tip at the top where you couldn't fit anything without falling over one side or the other, but it's some kind of large structure, large hill, so to speak, with enough room on the top to fit a garden of sorts. Now, that's probably not the way you thought of it, but that's exactly how Ezekiel describes it. 
And if you think about what you know about mountains in Scripture, it actually makes perfect sense. Because what is the mountain often representative of as we move throughout the Scriptures? The special dwelling place of God. When the Israelites come out into the desert, they are on the plain. And where is the Lord? He dwells on His mountain. They're not allowed to come to the mountain. He's up there thundering as the law goes forth. That's His special dwelling. Only Moses is allowed to come and see Him there. But that's where he dwells. As we move further in, God places his temple where? On a mountain, Mount Zion. Mountains figure prominently in the Gospels. Jesus is transfigured. The glory shines forth where? On a mountain. And when we get all the way to Revelation, we see the temple coming to rest on a mountain. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, rests on a mountain. So it makes perfect sense, actually, that the first temple of God, the garden itself, rests upon a mountain. Now, why would that have any significance for us? Because I want you to picture what happens when Adam is created in light of that geography. The Bible says God creates the man out of dust. Where does he create him? As a child, I often conflated the two stories and thought, well, God creates Adam. Adam's often associated with the garden, so God created Adam in the garden. Not so. God creates Adam... Then it says he takes the man and places the man that he had made in the garden. Which means what? That as Adam is made, in order for him to go to where God dwells, he has to do what? Ascend the mountain of the Lord. Now the Lord himself does this. The Lord is the one who takes him and brings him up. But that's the image right from the very beginning. Adam is made and then he is placed where God dwells in his holy garden. By ascending God's mountain. And some of you are already thinking forward into verses, that one of which I just read. And that's entirely appropriate. Now this initial ascension of Adam to dwell where God dwells, why did he do it this way? Because it was meant as a foreshadowing of what? Of the final and ultimate ascent that Adam was supposed to make from where? From his pre-fall condition to eternal glory. That's what it was meant to represent. It was a foreshadowing of what should ultimately happen if Adam obeys and succeeds in the covenant of works. He would have ascended into God's heavenly throne. So Adam was on the mountain. But we know, of course, that Adam fails. And when Adam fails, the Bible says that God casts him out of the garden on the east side. He casts him out of the east of his holy mountain. Which means what? That when, God, when Adam is cast away from the presence of God, he then has to descend the mountain to go away from the presence of the Lord. And then what happens? God places a cherubim in front of the entrance to the east side of Eden. And the cherub wields a flaming sword, representative of God's wrath and judgment. And why did he place the cherub there? What does he say explicitly? To guard the way to the tree of life, lest he take of it and live forever. So what is God announcing? That the way to eternal life has now been severed from mankind. Mankind may not dwell where God dwells, and he may not have access to eternal life. That has been shut off and sealed. And so as Adam and Eve descend the mountain, as they look back, what greets their vision? The place where they once dwelt, where God still dwells. A gateway sealing the entrance to the garden. 
and a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way. That's the last vision they have as they walk away from the presence of the Lord. And so what are we left with? For man now, the only way back to attain eternal life is to pass through the judgment. That's the only way back in. Because the flaming sword of God's wrath stands in the way. And so the very first gate and the very first flaming sword in Scripture tell us that communion with God has been severed. It's a means of keeping people away from the Lord because of sin. And so if this situation is ever going to get reversed, if we're ever going to be able to undo what Adam and Eve have gotten us into, then here's what's got to happen. Somebody has got to ascend back up that mountain. Somebody has got to pass through the flaming sword of judgment. And somebody has got to open that gate. That's the picture that's laid out for us right in the first couple of chapters of the book of Genesis. So we've got already our first ascent, our first mountain, and our first gate. And they all flow together. So that's the situation after the fall. But before we depart from these first chapters of Genesis, I, I think there's a little bit more interesting detail that will help us that we can pull out. And, and, and it, we can get at it by asking a very interesting question that I don't think a lot of us consider, but it's a very simple question. And that's this. After they're kicked out of the garden, where does the first family go? Where do they go? In theory, they've got the whole world at their disposal. They could go spread out, go live wherever they want, this corner of the world, the northeast, southwest. They probably didn't have names for all the different regions of the earth yet, but they could go find one and name it and establish their kingdom there. But where do they go? I think it's pretty clear that they stayed in Eden, not the garden, because the garden is in Eden. Eden's a larger territory surrounding it. But they stayed in Eden. Now, how do we know that? If we can cheat by jumping forward just a little bit to the end of the episode of Cain and Abel, after Cain has killed Abel and he's had his, his dealings with God, Scripture says that God cast Cain east of Eden, which implies what? That right before he was cast away, where was he? In Eden with the rest of his family. They were still living there. Now, why would they still be living in Eden right next to the very reminder of everything that they had lost and all of the sin that they had brought upon the world? I think the answer is found in what happens right after the fall. God kills a couple of animals, right? And he clothes Adam and Eve in these animal skins to foreshadow the imputed righteousness of another that would cover and atone for sin. And in so doing, God introduces to the first parents of this race the concept of sacrifice. Sacrifice. And there's an implicit assertion here that now the only way that man may have any dealings with God is by means of sacrifice. And so what is sacrifice intimately tied to? Worship. They stayed there to worship God. And you can see this in the story of Cain and Abel. Right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4, we're told this, and I asked this question to some of the guys at, at lunch just to, to see their responses because I thought it was interesting. 
Where the Bible says that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to the Lord. Doesn't say they were out in the field doing their own thing and they threw up an altar wherever they want and slaughtered an animal. It says they brought sacrifices to the Lord. Ask them the question, where did they bring them? Where did they bring the sacrifices? To which Zach, who couldn't be with us tonight, but he aptly responded, to God. And he was right. But then the question is, where was God? Well, where has he always been thus far? In his garden. In his dwelling. And so the picture is this. That Cain and Abel and the whole first family, as they worship, bring sacrifices to the entrance of the gate of Eden, that sealed gate where the flaming cherub stands, they bring their sacrifices there and offer them before the Lord. And so now what happens is, is sinners who have been cast down from the mountain of God take an animal upon themselves, and what do they do? They ascend the mountain of the Lord with their sacrifice. And they approach unto the entrance of God's temple, and there they worship the Lord by a sacrifice. And if you know your Old Testament history, there's all sorts of bells going off right now about, from that picture about what's to come later on. And a lot of people have actually suggested that it was at the entrance of the temple, of the garden, that God sent fire down, we can't prove it, but sent fire down to consume Abel's sacrifice to show that it was accepted of the Lord. And that's how Cain and Abel knew whose sacrifice was accepted and whose wasn't. I just throw that out there as an interesting idea. I would go in, I, I do want to, I don't have time to address this verse, but, but it, in Genesis chapter 4 there is a verse, it's fascinating, that I think clearly establishes there was actually a door to the entrance of the garden and that's where they brought their sacrifices. But it would require me to explain some Hebrew and stuff that I had to study and I just don't have time. You can ask me about it if you're curious. So that's the situation. They bring sacrifices to the Lord. And even in the case of Abel, whose sacrifice was accepted, the gate doesn't open. doesn't open. And so he has to turn around and go back down the mountain. He offered pure worship to the Lord. But it's not enough to open the gate. And Cain tried to approach God, by the way, outside of the means of blood. He thought that he could deal with God outside of sacrifice. I believe that's why his sacrifice wasn't accepted, which was a reflection of his own heart. So then, how long does this situation last? How long does the first family of pure worshipers continue worshiping at the feet of the mountain of Eden that they had lost so long ago? Well, I would suggest, and a lot of people have, have said this, and Paul pointed out to me that so does A.W. Pink, that this situation lasts until the flood. Now, why does that make sense? Well, because at the time of the flood, God cataclysmically destroys the entire earth. It's not just all of the living creatures, it is. But all the language in Genesis 6 has the upheaval of mountains and valleys, and there's a lot going on. I mean, the whole, the whole earth is being judged. That's what the text literally says. He will destroy the earth. And so what happens? The Garden of Eden is washed away. As Peter describes it, that was the world that then was, and it passed away with the flood. And so... Now, there's, there's no longer a garden. And I want to pause for just a moment on the flood account as we start to now move forward through Scripture. We start to push through the book of Genesis. Because I think in the flood account, there's actually a lot of these same features that we just looked at in the beginning that reappear again. Now, I want you to consider just a few points. First of all, we mentioned in my first uh, entry into this topic of biblical theology, the temple one, 
that the ark is actually presented like a temple. Just let me remind you of a few of those features. Just like the temple has a threefold structure, threefold division to it, God specifically sets three divisions of the ark. There are detailed building instructions. The only other place that appears is in the detailed building instructions of the temple. Clean and unclean animals are introduced. That has lots of ceremonial and sacrificial connotations. Man and animals now dwelling together with God, kind of like you had in the Garden of Eden. And very interestingly, for our purposes tonight, this ark temple also has a gate, does it not? And in the story, to be inside of the gate or the door of the ark is to be where God is. It's to be safe from his wrath. To be outside of the gate is to be under judgment and wrath and condemnation. Just as when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and the gate was shut, it was a sign that they were now under God's wrath. And what does God do? He, he brings Noah and his family. They ascend up into the ark and then he shuts the door behind them. And all those who are shut out are now subject to the wrath of God. And then at the very end of the flood, we read that the ark comes to rest on the top of a mountain. Where was the last time we saw a temple come to rest on the top of a mountain? Back in Genesis, that's going to be repeated multiple times throughout the scriptures. And then Noah and his family emerge from this temple. And it's almost, the, the language is so reminiscent of Genesis 1, it's almost like we come out into a whole new creation, so to speak, where you have, you have uh, Noah and his, his family emerging into this new world and they get the dominion mandate all over again you know be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and and subdue it and they offer sacrifice at the gate of this temple as soon as they get down off the ark they build an altar and they do what they offer a sacrifice just like we saw in genesis 2 and 3 and we read that that sacrifice of course produces a a sweet and savory aroma in the nostrils of god and so we have the concept of propitiation and God being satisfied with a sacrifice. Now before we move on, why was Noah able to ascend into the ark and be safe? What was the question of the psalmist? Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord and who will dwell in his holy temple? Him with clean hands and a pure heart. And the text in Genesis 6 takes careful pains to mention that Noah was righteous before God. And so he is allowed entrance. Now we know from the rest of scripture that that righteousness that Noah had was a righteousness that came by faith. He was not a perfect being who merited righteousness in and of himself. What happens right after the flood is going to demonstrate that clearly. But notice, Noah alone is described as righteous. And yet, seven other people get to come with him, don't they? And so here you have the concept of people receiving salvation from wrath solely due to their relationship to one who is righteous. You see it? God's already building the picture. And one of the people who even got to go in, we read later on, was the father of the Canaanites who was a wicked man. And yet, just in a temporal sense, he was saved from the temporal wrath of God solely by his relationship to a righteous person. And so in this flood account, God's already providing a small picture that he still intends to dwell with a people in a holy realm in his temple and that a sacrifice is coming that is going to make all of this possible. 
and that will allow entrance into the gate that was once shut. And so then we move on from the flood and we begin to move on and this new world that Noah enters into begins to develop and many hundreds of years go by. The garden's long been destroyed. There's now no longer a central place that the faithful worshipers of God come to to bring their sacrifices over and over and over again. That'll have to wait until the time period of the nation of Israel. But even in this intermittent time period between now and Moses, God still shows us a picture that, that the fundamental realities of sin and separation from God are, are still there, but that entrance into his holy temple is still applicable and relevant to man. And this takes place in the life of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He's just, if you want to characterize it, a stolen the birthright, however you want to describe that episode. He's just gotten the birthright from his brother and he's on the run because he's afraid. And we read in Genesis chapter 28 that he comes to a certain place and that he lays down to go to sleep. And the place that he lays, is, it's going to be called later on in the narrative, he's going to name it Bethel. And if we, if we pay attention carefully to Genesis, we've already seen this place before in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and 13. And if you pay attention to the geography in the life of Abraham, it's very likely that this place was on the top of a mountain. That's the way that Genesis 12 and 13 seems to describe it. And so here you have Jacob ascending a mountain, laying down to rest on it, and then he has a dream. And what does he see in the dream? His eyes are open, and up there is heaven, God's dwelling place. That's what he sees. And from heaven extends what? A ladder, sometimes translated stairs, from where God is to where he is. And, and, and if you skip all the way to the end of the narrative... When the whole thing is over, he says, Surely the Lord was in this place and I didn't know it. Surely this is the house of the Lord. And most people focus on that part. But what does he say right after that? And this is the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. Which implies what? That when he looked, he saw the entranceway to heaven, but it was still blocked by a gate. It's still sealed off. Now if that's all he saw... That's a depressing situation because he's a righteous man and he sees what his heart longs for. That's where God dwells. That's where I want to be, but, but I can't get there because there's something in my way. But that's not all he sees because sticking down from heaven is the ladder and it extends from the entrance of that gate down to the, the very ground, the very earth on which Jacob stands. And listen, what do you do with stairs. You ascend them. Right? And so God is already promising to Jacob that somehow, even though there's a gate blocking the entrance because of sin, God's going to provide a means by which man can once again ascend into his presence. But that's not all. Because not only do you ascend stairs, you also descend stairs. And so you could even say that there's a, a little implication that not only is man going to be able to come up, but, but first, something's going to come down that's going to enable man to then make that ascent. And in the garden, Adam was held forth with that same opportunity, heaven. But he had to make the ascent on his own. But now God's announcing not the case. I'm going to provide the means 
by which this is going to happen. Do you see how the gospel is preached over and over again in the Old Testament in ways that we just fly right over? And so before we jump on into the time period of Israel, one more thing, just, just a little side thing to notice here. The last time we saw the entrance to heaven in a, in a gate, there was an angel standing in front of it. And he was a wrathful angel. He was the destroyer. I believe he's the same one who probably destroyed the Assyrians and, and slaughtered the Egyptian firstborn. Very well may have been. We don't know. But there's angels in this vision too. But they're not holding flaming swords. They're going up and down on the ladder as ministering spirits, assisting those who are making this ascent. And so even the angels who were once turned in wrath as the, the uh, executors of God's judgment now are able to assist even sinners because of this ladder. And so we move forward now and we come to the time period of the nation of Israel. And, and just like when I did the temple series, for the sake of time, I had to compress the whole episode of the tabernacle and the wilderness and, and the entrance into the land of Canaan. I had to compress that together with the building of the temple in Solomon's day and just treat them all as one big thing. I'm going to have to do that again here for the sake of time. But the problem is that's such a long stretch and there's so many rich details and rich stories that we often can get bogged down in all the little stories that comprise that huge chunk of, t chunk of time. So here's how I want to handle this time period. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take two swipes at it. In the first one, we're just going to take a quick 30,000 mile flyover. I'm going to take us in two minutes from the time of Egypt all the way until the days of Solomon and the temple. And I just want to point out a few salient features that, that correspond to what we're talking about. And then I'll come back and just nail in on a few specific things to notice about that time period that are relevant to us this evening. So let's take our quick, our quick flyover. In Exodus chapter 3, we get the introduction to God's meeting with Moses. In the first two verses we read this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to where? Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And then we read this, starting in verse 7. Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt... I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into a land that is good, broad, and flowing with milk and honey. All right, now picture the setup here. Israel is a people that are in bondage. They're in slavery right now. That's where they are. And where does the text present God? He's where he's always been. He's on his mountain, right? And he hears the cry of a people who are down there in bondage. And he has mercy on them and he says, I myself have come down, a.k.a. off of my mountain, to them in order to redeem them and bring them out of their slavery and out of their bondage. And so we have the first announcement right here. That God himself is going to bring salvation by descending to his people. 
Just as Adam and them were kicked out of the garden and they're down here in bondage and God's up here, we get the same typology here in the days of Israel. God descends from his mountain after hearing their cry. And when he leads them out of, out of bondage, he goes into Egypt and he, he slaughters the Egyptians and he sends all kinds of plagues on them. He kills Pharaoh and his firstborn and, and the firstborn of all of Egypt. And he brings them out and he brings them into the land of Canaan. So he's buying them out of bondage and he's bringing them to a land. The land of Canaan becomes the land of Israel. And it's very interesting that the prophets, as we go forward in the Old Testament, actually liken this, this promised land of Canaan to the land of Eden before it. Joel chapter 2 and verse 3, in describing coming judgment, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land, a.k.a. Israel, is like the Garden of Eden before it. I, there's, there's several places, but I'll just stop with one more. Isaiah chapter 51, For Yahweh has comforted Zion. He has comforted all of her waste places. He makes her wildernesses like Eden and her deserts like the Garden of God. And so what's the picture? God is redeeming a people and He's bringing them back into a land that's described like Eden. He's reversing the curse. Man had been cast away from the dwelling place of God in the beginning, away from the land of Eden, and now God comes and he's going to bring a people to dwell back in a land with him. But where does that leave us? Actually, one more note before we go on to that. God actually conquers the land on their behalf. You think of all the conquest narratives, right? He's the one sending down the rocks upon all of the evil inhabitants of the nations of Canaan. He knocks down the walls of Jericho. God is the one who's conquering this land. And the inhabitants of Canaan are descendants of whom? Ham. And Ham was the one who was at enmity with his brother, the righteous one. So you had in the brothers, I'm sorry, in the sons of Noah, this, this fulfillment of what God had said in Genesis chapter 3. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that's replayed in Noah's own sons. And so the, the descendants of, of Ham, who are the Canaanites, are like the seed of the serpent. And God comes in and casts out, kills, executes, puts under wrath the seed of the serpent and brings his people in to dwell in a holy land with him. So now the people have been bought out of bondage and they've been brought back into a land. What about this whole deal with the mountain? And this is where you may recall when I did our call to worship on Psalm 68, which, which goes into a lot of this. I said I don't have time to go into this now, but I hope to develop this more fully. Well, you know, here's, here's the sermon on it. So I kept my promise. They've come into the Holy Land, yes. And in the midst of that Holy Land, there's a mountain. It's Mount Zion, right? And God intends to dwell on Mount Zion. But that doesn't happen until the days of David. You remember what happens in Psalm 68? And it's, it's repeated in the historical books. David goes to get the Ark of God. For a long time, God had not made his ascent up into his holy mountain. They, they never made it because of sin. They were still in the land, but they never got up unto the mountain of God. And so David goes and gets the Ark, and he gathers an assembly of, of Israelites behind him. And after hundreds of years of God not having found a resting place on his mountain in his land, David and, and the Israelites begin to make the ascent up the mountain of God with the Ark leading the way. It's like God is leading a, a procession of captives, those who are in bondage in Israel, 
up the mountain and he intends to bring them into consummation where they shall dwell with him in his holy land. It's Eden all over again except it's reversed now and we're undoing what happened in the fall. And so Israel here is serving as a type and shadow of what's to come where somebody else is going to lead some captives captive and bring them up onto the mountain of God. Now that's the general overview. You see God kind of undoes what happened in Eden. We get off the mountain, cast out into bondage way east of Eden, and then God comes and, and brings the people back, slaughters the seed of the serpent and brings them back up to a mountain. You see, it's just, it's just reversing it. But the problem is that's just a type. And so when God actually brings the Israelites up to the top of Mount Zion, it's a beautiful picture of redemption. But they're still not allowed in the temple, are they? They have to stop. God goes into the temple. The ark goes in. But the gate shuts behind him. And the people of Israel have to stay outside of it. Why? Because the full thing's not here yet. And so here are some interesting features of, specific features of the tabernacle and temple that sort of highlight what we've been seeing. In, all throughout in, in Numbers, and it's repeated again in First Chronicles, we read about, and this is a passage of Scripture that honestly most people skip over because they find it boring. In First Chronicles chapter 26, David is preparing for the construction of the temple, and it's going through, and he's talking about how he distributes the musicians and the officials and the, uh, the leaders of the tribes and all that stuff. And there's a section in here about David's organization of the gatekeepers. And we read this. The divisions of the gatekeepers for the temple, corresponding to their chief, had duties just as their brothers did in ministering to the house of the Lord. And, and they cast lots by father's house, small and great alike, to see who would guard which gate. The lot for the east gate fell to Shemelia. And then it goes on. And then if we skip down to verse 17, we start to get some details. On the east gate, there were six guards each day. On the north, four. The south, four. As well as two and two at the gatehouse. And then it goes on to describe the west gate where there were also a couple of guards. So what's the picture? God builds a temple. There's gates that signify the entrance to the temple. But he places gatekeepers, people who will guard the entrance... And what is the function of those gatekeepers? We read over and over again, for example, in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 38, that the role of the gatekeepers is this. Those who were to camp before the, the tabernacle on the east side were Moses and Aaron, his sons, guarding the sanctuary to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. The cherub is reincarnated, so to speak, in these gatekeepers. The cherub was placed outside of the gate of Eden to guard the way into God's holy place. And now when God rebuilds the temple, he puts gatekeepers once again who have to kill any unclean thing who approaches unto God's holy dwelling place. And you may not have caught it because I read it fast. But did you notice out of the four gates, which one had the most gatekeepers? The east side. Why? Because that's the side that the temple faced, that's the side that Eden faced, and that's the side that the guardian cherub guarded all the way back in the Garden of Eden. 
God is protecting his realm, and we still have a severance between men and God. And then finally, in dealing with that temple still, you have the gate, and then at the entrance to the temple, right before the gate, God sets up, God has them set up an altar. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 4. Men shall bring their bull to the entrance of the tabernacle before the Lord. They will lay their hand on the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And then the animal is sacrificed on the altar. Do you remember what happened with Cain and Abel? They brought their sacrifices to the Lord. They offered them before the gate. And God recapitulates that here. And so here's what you have in the days of the temple. The sinful, believing Israelite had to carry his sacrifice up Mount Zion to approach unto the entrance of the temple of the Lord. He brought his, his, his sacrifice as close as he could. Then he had to kill it before a closed gate, slaying the animal, spilling its blood, sacrifice is altered, and yet the gate stays shut. And think about how often this happened. If you're a pious Israelite, at least for most Jews, you did it once a year. When, you, when everybody went up to Jerusalem. For the pious Israelite, you would do this more often. And so if you're a believing, regenerate, lover of God, over and over again, you're ascending the mountain of the Lord, you're bringing sacrifice, you're slaughtering animals, right at the entrance to the tent, and time and time again, the thing won't open, and you can't go to where God is. You have to turn around and go back down the mountain. And you do this over and over and over and over again. Can you picture... Why? The psalmist finally cries out and says, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? And who can dwell in your holy place? We keep doing this over and over again, and we're not getting to come in. Lord, who? Who can do it? It's not enough to simply climb the hill. The worshiper wants to stay. He wants to dwell in God's courts. But he can't. Because the blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. So the gate stays shut. That's the situation in Israel's day. But there is hope. Because the prophets, now after we've, we've built the temple in Solomon's day, we start moving forward more, more and more forward into the Old Testament. The prophets begin to speak. And they address this situation that we've been tracking all the way from the Garden of Eden. I'm going to skip first to Ezekiel's prophecy. Ezekiel gets a glorious vision. It's the last nine chapters of his book. It's called the Temple Vision. And in the Temple Vision, he sees the future coming temple of the Lord, which is supposed to be grand and glorious. By the way, it's on top of a mountain, and he ascends that mountain in order to see the vision. He sees a lot of stuff. It's a very detailed and tedious nine chapters of the Bible, but very wonderful. But let me draw your attention to a couple of things he sees when he's looking at this coming temple. In chapter 43 of Ezekiel, he says this, The Lord led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the Lord was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. I'm going to skip down just a little bit. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, he says this. They do some more things, and then they come back around outside of the temple. 
It says, The Lord brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It will not be open, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Bad news. But then we read this. Only the prince may sit in it to eat the bread of the Lord. He shall enter by the way. The gate is shut. But there's a prince. And the prince gets to open the gate and enter in. Isaiah chapter 60. You don't have to turn there if you just want to listen. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 62. We will get to 60, but I want to do 62 first. In Isaiah chapter 62, the Lord describes the coming salvation of His people Israel. He's told them over and over that He's going to save them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to do all these things. And he, there's lots of beautiful imagery in the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 62. But in verse 10, the, the direct address switches away from the people of Israel and He starts talking to this individual person. And if we skip down just a little ways... We read this in verse 11. The Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. So he announces that there's this coming one. He's coming to Israel and he has salvation. Now notice what the Lord says to this person to do in verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. The Lord commands Christ to go through the gates. Isaiah chapter 60. In addressing Israel once again, I actually quoted this in my call to worship recently. In verse 9, we got to talk about the coastlands, the Gentiles who shall be engrafted. They will get to come in from afar. Then starting in verse 10, we read this, speaking of the, the future redeemed people, Foreigners will build up your walls, and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I've had mercy on you. Verse 11, speaking to the people, Your gates shall be open continually, night and day. They will not be shut, that people may bring you the wealth of the nations. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, we have the righteous person. In verses 17 and 18, he begins to describe what the Lord has done to him in, in disciplining him. And he's, he's anguishing over this in a sense. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live, and I will recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. And then notice where he turns his attention. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter in through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of Yahweh, and the righteous shall enter through it. The psalmist's hope is that he will get to enter the gates of righteousness. And why would this be his hope? Because for year after year, he has stared at a closed gate separating him from his God. 
Now, I love that imagery. But I want to revisit, before we move on to the New Testament for the last couple of minutes, I want to revisit Psalm chapter 24 for just a moment. Psalm 24 is the psalm that I read to you at the beginning. It starts with this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? You see, the psalmist begins to lament. As I said earlier, who can, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in the house of the Lord? But then notice what he does. In the midst of his despairing and desiring that he should enter into the house of the Lord, what does he turn his attention to in verse 7? He begins to scream, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The psalmist immediately turns his attention to an unspeakable desire that the gates would one day be open. And so, that's the setup in the Old Testament. We have a sealed gate, yes. But when Jesus comes into this world, he begins to reenact the typology that we saw in Israel. But this time it's going to be for real. So let's walk through it piece by piece. The Lord Jesus sits in heaven, in the heavenly places. On his mountain, you might say. And he hears the cry of the poor, his people below. He hears their cry. He hears their groanings. It comes into his ear. And he and the Father enter into a covenant of redemption whereby the Father swears that he will grant salvation unto those that the Lord Jesus comes to conquer. And so the Lord Jesus, in agreeing that he is going to redeem a people, takes on flesh descends, as it were, his, from his holy abode down into a people who are lost, who are caught up in bondage, and who are in slavery to sin. And in his life, he does what? He begins to destroy the works of the devil, just as God destroyed the Canaanites. He does so at the beginning, as he enters into his temptation, which we went through, and he delivers three fatal blows to the head of the serpent as he resists all his temptations. And then, as he says later on, he begins to cast out demons so as to bind the strong man who holds all sinners in bondage. And he binds that strong man, and now, as we read throughout the Gospels, he begins to ransom people. He begins to take people who were captives and make them his own. And so he goes and he calls one disciple, and he comes and he follows him. And then he calls another disciple, and another disciple. And he begins to accumulate, sort of, in his train, this, this growing host of redeemed sinners who now follow him. And eventually he, he gathers such a, a large audience of, of, of wonderfully devoted followers... And he begins to, to lead them through this life. He begins to lead them through the wilderness. And he promises they're going to the promised land. They're going to the heavenly abode. But what's the problem? The gate is still shut. And what's really fascinating, Ben actually pointed this out to me when I started talking to him this about a year ago. In John chapter 10, Jesus begins to talk about this flock of his. That he's accumulated, right? 
He says, they hear his voice and they follow him. And then he says this fascinating line. To the shepherd of the sheep, it's to him that the gatekeeper opens. Right? To him the gatekeeper opens. And so the Lord Jesus is announcing to his disciples that we're going to get there. We are going to enter. And so the gospel narratives continue on. And he's betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he's beaten. And he's bruised. And he's hung on a cross. And he suffers the wrath of God. And on that hill called Golgotha, the skull, he crushes for all time the head of the serpent. He passes through the flaming sword of God's divine wrath. And then he's raised and he's vindicated in all of this. And then he takes his disciples after the resurrection and he leads them up to the top of an earthly mountain, right? Just as Adam once dwelt on a holy mountain on earth and he looked up to his goal, to glory. The Lord Jesus leads the disciples to the top of a mountain. And what happens? All of a sudden, clouds begin to form round his feet. And they grow. And they grow. And he starts to go up, little by little. And the disciples are watching this. And the Lord Jesus, who's resurrected and glorified, begins to ascend. No one's ascended yet. No one's got beyond the earthly mountains before. And here he is. He's going up. And he's going up. And he's going up. And he's going up. And the disciples, they're, they're looking up at him. And they're starting to see the bottoms of his feet. Yeah. But can you imagine the picture from the other side of the vision? As he ascends up into the heavens, the angels and all the heavenly hosts, they're looking down and they see this Christ, and he's coming up to them. And he's righteous. And he has salvation. And he gets closer and closer and closer and closer. And the cry begins to rise, begins to rise. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? This one, this one right here. He's righteous. He has a pure heart. He is upright in all of his ways. Here he comes. There he goes. He's taking another step of the mountain. And another step. And another step. And another step. And the Lord Jesus finally arrives. And he steps off of the clouds. And he begins to approach unto the heavenly sanctuary. And in his hand is a bowl of blood. His own blood that he shed on the cross and he approaches under that altar standing in front of the gate and he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the altar and I can't help but imagine that a fire dropped immediately from the heavens and consumed every bit of it showing that his sacrifice was accepted and as the heavenly hosts get louder and louder and louder the Lord Jesus approaches around the altar and he walks up and what's in front of him the flaming sword of the cherubim and the gate behind him and as he approaches that flaming cherub, that vicious creature of the Lord who had destroyed people, destroyed the Assyrians with just a blink of his sword, that fearsome creature who has been there since the Garden of Eden, whose sword has been turning every which way, guarding the way to this very gate, the Lord Jesus approaches him broad-chested and stares him straight in the eyes with eyes like flaming fire. And that cherub 
takes his sword and he sheaths it. And he stands to the side. And there's only one thing left in his way. The gate. That gate that has been sealed since the fall of Adam. And can you hear the heavenly chorus now? They take up the words of the psalmist. Be lifted up. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. Open. Open the gate. And the Lord Jesus approaches and he says one word. Open. And the gates fly off of their hinges and he walks through them. The train of his robe filling the temple once again. He's got all of his elect behind him. They're all coming and he approaches. And what awaits him in glory? The tree of life. And he goes up to it. And he takes the fruit. And he eats it. And he eats it. And in that moment, eternal life is secure. And he turns. And he becomes life-giving spirit. He takes his seat at the heavenly throne He receives the promise of the Spirit, and by the breath of his mouth, he sends that Spirit forth, and he pours it onto all of his people, and his people are eternally secure at that moment. Wow. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the ascension. And what do we read at the very end of the book of the Revelation? John, John, he's been looking at all of this. And at the very end, he looks at this heavenly temple where all of God's people are gathered. And one thing he wants to draw our attention to is this. Its gates shall never be shut. Never. Because we enter now through a new and living way into the heavenly of heavenlies. He is altogether lovely. This is your Christ, right? This is what he does for you. And I just can't help but think that so many of us have been deprived of the beauty of something like the ascension of Christ. Because all we ever do is picture it as some kind of fantasy tale where a guy's riding on clouds. And we don't see how it fits in. And we don't see how our salvation, our redemption, and the glory of God is secured by one who ascends the mountain of the Lord. And so I hope that this will stir you on. I hope that this will stir you to greater worship. Because as I've been studying through this for the past year, I... I've been overcome on more than one occasion with who can make this up? This is the wisdom of God. Let's pray.